next item on our agenda is our Bishop's Pastoral Address. My name is Ifeo Jatayo. I, I serve as Rector of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Syracuse, New York, and it is my distinct privilege to introduce the address. In a world of competing loyalties and conflicting claims to authority, I am grateful and encouraged that Bishop Julian's sole reliance for leading our diocese is God's unchanging world. He derives his authority as Bishop of this Anglican Diocese from God's living word containing the pages of the Old and New Testament. I think along with Apostle Paul in Acts 20, he wants to be able to say, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It is God's word to which he calls us, both clergy and laity, as we order our lives in this world that is passing away. Listen now to God's word in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. I move that the bishop's pastoral address be included in the official proceedings of this synod. I second. Thank you. Any discussion? There better not be. <laughs> <laughs> All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Against? It is agreed. Thank you, sir. Thank you for responding to my invitation to gather for this 2023 Missions Conference and Synod of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. This is our 10th synod together Amen. as a diocese. Amen. God be thanked for the mission and ministry we share together. Over these years, hymns ancient and modern have been sung to God in adoration and praise of his holy name. Liturgical worship with Protestant reform foundations, that's in fact how King Charles described it two weeks ago, 
uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, have echoed heavenward from the congregations and missions of our diocese. The two sacraments of the gospel have been faithfully administered in our midst. People have offered themselves for holy orders and been ordained. New churches have been planted. The least, the lost, and the lonely have been cared for, and the hungry have been fed. In reflecting on the achievements of our diocese over those years, Mr. Peter Edmund, lay leader from Messiah Germantown here in Pennsylvania, and retiring standing committee meet, a member recently said, at least we have not apostatized. <laughs> While some people get cranky about our non-geographical nature, it says something that congregations needing oversight know they can come to the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word and find refuge from strange and erroneous doctrines. Over these past years, we have influenced politicians, we have heightened the place of mission and evangelism and established missionary works in Haiti and Ghana. We have done what I believe to be the hard work and articulated why this diocese upholds the historic precision of Christendom and ordains men and women to serve as deacons and men only to serve as priests and bishops. We have sought to serve our brothers and sisters across the Anglican Church in North America and internationally in our family in GAFCON. And while sometimes over these 10 years it has been painful, we have publicly declared that we are in communion with all Anglican churches, dioceses and provinces that hold and maintain the historic faith, doctrine, sacrament and discipline of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Amen? Amen? Most of all over these 10 years, the Word of God has been faithfully proclaimed in season and out of season, in pulpits, across Sunday school classes and Bible studies and home groups, across our congregations, missions and church plants, which has resulted in conversions to Christ as Lord and Savior, baptisms, confirmations and transformed lives all for the glory of God alone. Ten years ago, we gathered for our inaugural synod not far from here. It is most fitting that we should be assembled here this week to mark this 10th anniversary in the suburbs of Philadelphia, one of the most historically significant cities in the United States. Anglicanism is the oldest expression of English-speaking Christianity in North America, and Philadelphia has played a central and significant role in the development of Anglicanism in our republic. Philadelphia was not only the metropolis of the American founding, but it was also the place of God's work of grace in realigning and renewing Anglicanism in the late 18th century. Philadelphia gave birth to our heritage as Anglicans in North America. It was here in Philadelphia that the Colonial Church of England was reorganized as the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States. The initial germination and vision 
of what would later become the Anglican Church in North America, the province to which this diocese is proud to be affiliated. At a meeting not unlike this one, in the original Christchurch at 2nd and Market Streets, a convocation of Anglicans in North America charted a new and auspicious beginning for the church in this nation. On July 28, 1789, 22 clergymen and 16 laymen considered and adopted a new constitution and a set of canons. They authorized a new American prayer book and they achieved a unity in the American church heretofore unrealized. Most importantly, however, that humble Philadelphia assembly of old believed that the proclamation of the gospel in the Anglican tradition would reach a new nation, continent, and eventually the world with the transforming power of Jesus Christ. I trust we are thankful to God for the incredible privilege of standing upon the shoulders of these faithful Anglican men and women Amen. as we prayerfully venture to do the same today in the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. In a recent text message, Canon Jim Saladin from Emmanuel Anglican Church in New York City wrote to me about our diocese. He said, and I quote, the Lord has kept us focused on Him and unified with each other despite, listen, formidable noise in the wider world that wants to distract and divide. In that text message, Jim writes about being unified. Some say we can be unified through the liturgy we use, the vestments we wear, the canticles we sing, and the bishops we have, especially if they have accents. <laughs> Anglicans, I'm told, can often be unified because they are nice. But if you say to me, Julian, how is it that we are truly unified? I would say to you, our unity is in Christ and His Word. Bishop J.C. Ryle, that 19th century hero of mine and many of you wrote, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is, he wrote, the very unity of hell. Oh, wow. Not bad for a bishop from the Church of England. <laughs> so come with me now, if you would, brothers and sisters, to the word of God which give us, gives us unimpeachable unity and let us read it and mark it and learn from it together. Have you discovered that in the pages of Holy Scripture, God often likes to save the very best for last? Will you think with me where in the Bible we observe God saving the very best for last? We see that where? Well, of course, we see it in the book of Revelation at the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth where Christians, followers of Jesus, will behold the glory of the Lord for all eternity. Our minds stagger at this thought. It is astonishing. It's, in, in fact, too much for our minds, our limited minds to contain. On that last day, 
history will then be seen to have been his story, the very best for last. Well, where else do we find that in the biblical canon? We might say at the end of the Old Testament, where God sends prophet after prophet, raised up a priesthood, and gave the people kings, and yet saves the very best for last by sending his own son into the world as the final prophet, the final word from heaven, as the great high priest, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. Amen. And so it should not surprise us that when we step back even earlier and come to the very first week of history, that there too, God saves the very best for last. Go with me if you would, because as you've heard, heard me say, the Bible is a whole lot better open than it is closed to Genesis chapter 1. And look with me in verse 27, read to us earlier by the Reverend Ife Ojitayo. We find ourselves on the sixth day of creation. In the very first week of history, God's work of creation had been carried out. Sunrise, sunset, earth and sea and sky and springtime and harvest and summer and winter and autumn. The birds flying above the earth and the great sea creatures in the world. He even made the kangaroos, Archbishop. I mean, isn't that great? But alongside them, he made the kiwis. <laughs> the wonder of and majesty of God's creation. And yet, have you noticed as you inwardly digest Genesis chapter 1 that even amidst all that created magnificence, there in the creation account, God saves the very best for last and he completes his week of creation with his masterpiece. Look with me in verse 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We have men created in the image of God. They look like you, Archdeacon Iberg. <laughs> they should be so lucky. <laughs> and we have women created in the image of God. Men created in, him as a, in his image after his own likeness. Women created in his image after his own likeness. Nothing else. Do you notice that there in the Word of God? No X unspecified or Y undisclosed. Only male and female created in the image of God. I think that's beautiful. Human beings are God's masterpiece. Everything else that staggers our imagination and wows our heart and mind, everything else in all creation that fills our eyes with astonishment, everything else is secondary to God's creation of male and female in His own image. You just can't read Genesis chapter 1 and be in any doubt about that. This distinction is exceedingly relevant 
for our present day. We are living in a cultural moment in which there is increasing confusion about the significance of God's created order and whether Christians should think about being male or female as something that is given and fixed or as something that is to be, to a substantial degree, malleable and self-chosen. And I want to think about that for a moment. Being male or female is part of God's creative design in His image. There are males, there are females. And scientific research and discovery with all its ability to look at DNA only confirms what we find in the Bible. There are male and female created by Him. You know, there's a whole lot of noise today. Have you heard it? About our freedom to determine for ourselves what sex we want for ourselves or for our children or grandchildren. Many healthcare professionals who are pushing the gender-affirming care narrative emotionally tell parents that their children will be suicidal if they do not pursue identity reassignment. And yet, what is it that we have discovered there in the first week of creation, male and female, he created them. Undergoing surgery, taking hormones or non-binary self-declarations cannot change who God created you to be. The determination of your sex belongs not to you or your parents or your psychotherapist or your surgeon or anyone else. It belongs to God alone. God reserves for himself the exclusive right to choose whether a person is male or female. And I can hear you thinking, because I too have been a pastor and am a pastor, you might be thinking, but Bishop, you might say, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand my son, or my daughter, or my nephew, or my niece. Oh, but I do. I would say to you, when we believe the Bible to be the Word of God written, we give the Bible precedence to determine and interpret the details of our lives, and if our life's experience contradicts the Bible, we must give the Bible interpretive authority. Surely, this is what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian. Many people today believe that human beings have crawled their way through the primordial slime, up through the food chain to become homo sapiens, and that we are just animals like other creatures that run around in the woods. And as a result, there is nothing special about our humanity. So if we want to identify as male, that's our choice. And if we want to identify as female, that too is our choice. The resulting chaos of this type of foolishness is on display across our nation. A profound deconstruction of our biological sex which undermines the fundamental order established by God himself, reflecting the very essence of who he is. 
and who we were created to be. That narrative, that chaos, is taking place within every arena of our society. When God's order is deconstructed and redefined, the consequences, consequences for sexuality, gender, marriage, family, and society are profound. When this deconstruction is aided by those who profess to follow Christ, it is a scandal. Would you remember that word, scandal, for a moment? The word scandal comes from a Greek word, scandalon, which means stumbling block. Isn't that interesting? In the New Testament, a scandal is some outrage that trips people up or in some other way impedes their path. A scandal, a stumbling block, a scandal of blasphemous proportion is going on right now in a Roman Catholic parish in New York City where a new exhibit in the church is on display called God is Trans, a queer spiritual journey. It's been displayed at the church of St. Paul the Apostle, which invites viewers to shed their old personhood, identify with the exhibit, and commune with God. How the parish priest of that congregation could allow such blasphemy in a church named after the Apostle Paul and how he could place such a snare in the way of his parishioners is scandalous. I'm so proud of the many clergy of this diocese who are so lovingly and carefully shepherding people who identify as transgender and come to faith in Christ, teaching them that God has planned from the foundation of the world that they are as individuals to be conformed to the image of His Son. That confirmation to the image of Christ leads back to God's creational design, but it does so through Jesus Christ and through Jesus, as we heard from Pastor Hyde makes all the difference in the world. Can we honor our clergy in this diocese for their faithful shepherding of the Word of God? <laughs> Athanasius, a Christian theologian, church father, chief defender of the Trinity and noted Egyptian Christian leader, was one of the most important and controversial ecclesiastical uh, and theological leaders of the fourth century. And he wrote, and I quote, God has given us a share in his own image, that is, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Simply in order that through this gift of God-likeness, we may be able to perceive the image, uh, perceive the image absolute, that is the Word Himself, and through Him to apprehend the Father. I just love this quote. We are created in His image so that we can know Him. When God created us in His image, male and female, He was giving us a precious gift in order that we may know Him through His Son, Jesus. And to reject that image is to reject His gift and darken our minds. It is to tear ourselves away from the sustainer of our being. So when I say 
that God reserves for himself the exclusive right to, cons to choose whether a person is male or female, I am not being cruel. No, not at all. I'm not erecting an arbitrary fence. I say it because the biblical story is an invitation to draw near to Jesus, to behold the Son and through Him to know and enjoy the Father. And we cannot do that, brothers and sisters, if we are deliberately attempting to destroy the gift of being created in His image. Right. Maximus the Confessor. Heard of him? He wrote in the seventh century about the implications of abandoning our identity in Christ. You see, none of this is new. He says that the one who rebels against the Logos enters a condition of unstable gyrations and fearful disorder of soul and body. It's not bad from the seventh century, is it? <laughs> unstable gyrations. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we reject our imaging of Christ, we are like a spinning top that has lost its momentum. We are double-minded, as the Apostle James writes. It might seem all right for a moment, but catastrophic failure is inevitable. Remember that. That's right. Remember that. <coughs> On November the 29th, 2019, a wonderful life transformation happened to my wife Brenda and me. It was and is one of the greatest gifts from God we have received thus far in our lives. We became grandparents. Amen. Our two grandchildren, Alice Jane, there they are, aren't they adorable? And Rhett Gordon have instantaneously captured our hearts. Amazing little human beings created in the image of God. Brothers and sisters, teach your children to have confidence in the Bible. Teach them to do that. If you remain silent, secular schools and the media will fill the hush with erroneous, false, and damaging propaganda, which will distort the truth and beauty of God's created order. Right. Even our children in Christian schools or homeschool are vulnerable to the fire hose of lies spewing out of their smartphones and children's television programs. Yep. Elementary school children in our public schools are being exposed to books such as I Am Jazz, yep. the story of a jan transgender child based on real-life experience of Jazz Jennings, who has become a spokesman for trans kids everywhere. Amazon calls Jennings' book an essential tool for parents and teachers to share with children whether those kids identify as trans or not. Other titles such as Calvin, Time to be Me, and Born Ready, the story of a boy named Penelope, are both promoted as books to engage the minds of our five and six-year-olds. I encourage you to purchase and read for your little ones Imagio Dei, mm. written by Ryan McKenzie. You can purchase it at the bookstore here, which beautifully explores the many ways we reflect God's image 
and are his representatives here on earth, as well as God-made boys and girls, helping children understand the gift of gender by Marty Mikowski. Tell these truths, will you, to your children and to your grandchildren, to your nephews and to your nieces. Talk to them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, and have confidence in the Word of God, even in the nursery of your home. Amen. If you need help and resources to talk to your parishioners and friends and family who may be struggling with these issues of identity, we are blessed to have Pastor Gary Ingram Amen. from the Love and Truth Network at this missions conference. We heard Gary's profound personal story last evening. Gary and his wife, Melissa, both deeply struggled with sexual and relational brokenness, including homosexuality, identity confusion, pornography, and premarital sex. And they were set free from addiction to sin by Jesus and now help others along their life's journey. Male and female, he created them. Amen. 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 You know, even as Anglicans, we're allowed to whisper amen. <laughs> Before I was your bishop, I served as canon missioner for the jurisdiction that formed our diocese. In those days, I had the immense privilege of meeting remarkable Americans from all spheres of life who resolutely believed our Lord Jesus Christ. And they were and are and even at significant cost to themselves and their congregations, still contending for the gospel once for all, delivered to the saints. Yes. I name some of you as among those people. One of those heroes was a man named Sidney Brooks Frigard Jr. Brooks was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1940. And after college in Iowa, enlisted in the United States Navy in February 1959. For 38 years, Brooks served our nation, ultimately advancing to the rank of captain. His Navy career was highlighted by 16 promotions, eight major sea deployments on aircraft carriers, and five overseas shore assignments. He progressed through enlisted non-commissioned and commissioned officer ranks, finally ending his career as one of the Navy's true last remaining Mustangs. Amongst Brooks's personal military awards were the Legion of Merit, two Bronze Stars, the Silver Cross, two Meritorious Service Medals, four Navy Commendation Medals, the Navy Achievement Medal, four Navy Good Conduct Medals, four Vietnam Service Medals, the Vietnam Campaign Medal, the Vietnam Presidential Unit Citation, and many other awards. In all the years I knew Brooks Freegard Jr., never once do I recall him talking to me about his military awards. In fact, I was stunned to read about them. But I do recall him talking to me about Christ and the Gospel, the doctrine of the 39 articles of religion and I recall him talking to me about the formidable noise that he believed was attempting to derail the Christian heritage of these United States. 
Brooks served Christ and his church with loyal, constant, and steadfast allegiance. He was senior warden at the Anglican Mission in Southern Maryland. He worked with you, Neil Brown, on that occasion. And later at Anglican Church of the Hill Country in Kerrville, Texas, where he worked faithfully alongside the Reverend John Onstott, bringing welcome restructuring to the congregation. And he was at one time a voting delegate to this very synod. He was such a company man. It wasn't his tradition. But when our Nigerian brothers and sisters used to lead us in our very exciting offering at our synod services, I noticed on one occasion Brooks Freegard. Was he dancing, Judy? <laughs> Swiveling down the aisle to make his, his offering. I turned to Bishop Benner at the time and said, look, Brooks Freegard is in the aisle. <laughs> Last year, on November 26, 2022, at his home in Comfort, Texas, Brooks breathed his last and went home to be with Jesus. Brooks was married to his high school sweetheart, Judy, for 62 years. Judy Freegard is with us this morning from Comfort, Texas, members of Synod. Would you please stand and honor Judy and her late husband, Sidney Brooks Freegard. I love that man. Some weeks after Brooks died, Brenda and I were visiting Judy in her home. And we talked with you, Judy, about many things. I lamented about a recent experience at Dulles Airport in Virginia, where I was walking to the departure gate and noticed a digital screen advertising romantic getaways for same-sex couples. As I walked by, I quietly thought to myself, my late grandmother Dorothy would never have contemplated such an overt and public display of God-dishonoring sexuality. When I shared this with Judy, she said to me, Bishop, the America of my grandchildren is not the America I knew as a child. You see, lines of demarcation have been drawn in our nation. Ken McIntyre, a 30-year-old veteran of national and local newspapers and a fellow in media and public policy at the Heritage Foundation, wrote earlier this year about a shameful incident at our nation's most famous shopping mall, the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota, where security guards asked a man named Paul Shorrow to remove his T-shirt because printed on the back of the shirt was, and I quote, Jesus is the only way. With the well-known coexist symbol crossed out and printed on the front was, Jesus saves. Amen. I said to those of you who were gathered here last year that I sometimes wonder if we Americans do not appreciate the weighty foundations and freedoms that are the foundation of these United States. One of those foundational bedrocks of our nation is the freedom of speech. Right. The freedom of speech is guaranteed in the First Amendment. It's worth defending. 
It is why Sergeant First Class Oscar Duggins, who spoke to us earlier, has given 11 years of his life and risked his life. He risked everything to preserve the freedoms that we so often take for granted. I am unapologetic about defending this freedom. This is the United States of America, Amen. where freedom of speech is a thing. Freedom of religion is too. Amen. The security guards at the Mall of America had no legitimate reason to demand Mr. Shorrow remove his T-shirt with the message Jesus saves printed on it. The person or persons offended by the man's T-shirt were free to leave or stay or not look at it. You see, brothers and sisters, the real problem at this moment in our history is that God is disappearing from the human horizon and by extinguishing the light of God's approach, humanity is losing its bearings with ever-increasingly destructive effects. Right. As Michael Horton has said, the church in America has become so identified with its secular, secular culture that it is difficult to tell them apart. Wanting to retain our last vestiges of power, popularity and privilege, writes Horton, our churches and Christian movements often seek to grab the headlines. We try to build a kingdom through press releases, crowded stadiums, programs, and relevant communication. Like new celebrities, we pander to particular constituencies in order to gain a larger share of the market. Instead, we simply keep, instead of simply keeping to our script and proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Yes. Lines of demarcation have been drawn, and the noise of this demarcation in our nation is formidable. It attempts to distract and, decide and divide the followers of Jesus from the gospel mission we are commissioned by our Lord to fulfill. This demarcation is not only visible at the Mall of America, it is sharply in focus in the seminaries and college campuses across our country. The Theological Institute of Connecticut, later known as Hartford Seminary, is one of America's oldest theological schools. The seminary was founded, listen, in 1834 by Calvinists who left Yale to establish a new institution of Christian learning. In the early decades of the 20th century, Hartford was a leading institution in the evangelization of Muslims. Yet, in the year 2000, an Islamic chaplaincy program was launched at Hartford not to reach Muslims for Christ, but to train Muslims for chaplaincy roles in the American military. The number of students taking the Islamic chaplaincy training has steadily increased. Recently, Muslims made up 35% of the student body at Hartford, an institution which a few generations ago was training Christians to evangelize Muslims. In 2019, Hartford Seminary changed its name to the Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. They hired Ingrid Madsen, a Canadian-born convert to Islam with a doctorate in Islamic studies from the University of Chicago to direct the chaplaincy program at the seminary. Today, Hartford tells you they are global-facing, impact-focused, 
The original logo of the seminary depicted a cross, the central symbol of the Christian faith, with the first three letters of the name of Jesus in Greek. But today, the university declares their new logo is a colorful new creation with a different message. They say it is, and I quote, aspirational and contemporary, confident and hopeful, and it uses bold colors inspired by the flags of the world. Lines of demarcation have been drawn. In less than 200 years, a seminary founded by Calvinists has departed the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and embarked on a course of unrecognizable to its founders. Thanks be to God for institutions of learning such as Hillsdale College, where learning, character, faith, and freedom are indispensable and inseparable to its purpose and drive their mission. As much of the state-managed education of our most precious children is tainted by progressive values, I am thankful that Hillsdale is making new efforts to reach beyond its Michigan campus and impact even a younger generation of Americans by adding to its network of classical public charter schools which offer a firm grounding in civic virtue and a cultivation of moral character. It is an honor to welcome among us Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. Would you welcome him to the city? We have a growing number of clergy and lay leaders who are faithfully serving children and youth in educational arenas. Archdeacon George and Janine Finlay both serve on the staff of True North Classical Academy in Miami, Florida. True North provides a high level of education in the classical tradition. Deacon Tyler Van Fossen teaches at a New Covenant school in Anderson, South Carolina. New Covenant presents rigorous quality academic programs, training children to think biblically about every every arena of life. Amber Saladin and Laura Wurzak and Jonathan Wiley and others are all involved in institutions of learning affecting students across our nation. Recall again those words of Canon Saladin. There is formidable noise in the wider world that wants to distract and divide. As your bishop, I would far rather not talk to you about these lines of demarcation in the United States of America, but surely there must be some way to seek Christian influence in the national conversation, in places of learning, and affect the decisions made on Capitol Hill and Washington, D.C. Just consider the noise that surrounded the June 24, 2022 Dobbs versus Jackson landmark decision by the United States Supreme Court that held that the Constitution of the United States does not confer the right to abortion. Amidst the noise, I say to you that I am so proud to be the bishop of an Anglican diocese that is codified into canon law that God and not man is the creator of human life and that the unjustified taking of human life is sinful. Right. Pastor Kevin DeYoung, 
Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, has said, and I quote, I would rather not be in a cultural war, but brothers and sisters, sometimes the opposite of war is not peace and quiet, but surrender and loss. Surely, he says, it is not wrong to speak about the Christian underpinnings of our founding and desire to see our country guided by Christian principles and undergirded by Christian truth. I want that for Alice. And I want it for Rhett, my grandchildren. Amen. I want it for you and those in your congregations and missions and church plants. Surely we must want that. Surely we do not wish to denounce every Christian who earnestly longs for those who are called by God's name to humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways in order for God to hear and forgive and heal their land. There must be some middle ground, says Dion, between a theocratic Christian nationalism and a culturally acceptable Christian nothingism. This generation has been lied to. In his insightful book, For the Beauty of the Earth, David Taylor, writing about the church year, said, and I quote, if the church doesn't tell us what time it is, the surrounding culture surely will. And we usually end up all the worse for it. You see, friends, when you let the culture tell you what time it is, what will be our defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us? Surely the answer is that the Christian worldview is founded on the revelation of the eternal God. It is naive to believe that we can speak as the world speaks and live as the world lives and all will be well. We must find our way back to an authentic faith revealed once and delivered once and for all in the gospel which has been trust entrusted to us. We must, as the Apostle Paul writes, hold firm to the trustworthy <coughs> word as taught. Doing so is an indispensable foundation for the work Christ has called us in this diocese. Foundations must be sound. They must be plumb square. They must be strong and must be well laid in order to support the structures that set, up, set upon them. If the foundations are weak or inadequately prepared, the consequences are disastrous. Ultimately, walls crumble, roofs cave in, and entire structures are at risk of collapsing top to bottom. And so it is with the church. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the house of God, the building which God himself is erecting, laying stone upon stone, which he promises and he himself inhabits and dwells. The foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the chief cornerstone. Amen. And the Apostle Peter quotes Isaiah when he writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The cornerstone is a person. It is Jesus who has given us his word. You know from the beginning, Anglicans have believed that the living word of God alone contains all things necessary for salvation. 
This was the view of Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, who was martyred for his faith in 1556. He said, let us day and night muse, meditate, and contemplate the scriptures. Let us ruminate and, as it were, chew the cud that we may have the sweet juice, spiritual effect, honey, kernel, taste, comfort, and consolation of them. Amen. How wonderful to think of the Bible in such terms. Sweet juice, honey, taste, and comfort. In 1991, Brenda and I led a team of six adults and our infant son to plant a new Anglican church at the top of New Zealand's South Island. Weren't we beautiful? We knew very little about church planting. Churches were amalgamating in New Zealand in those days and closing. The concept of planting a new church, especially an Anglican church, was not part of the lexicon in the early 90s. We stayed for over 11 years. We developed a wonderful renovated worship center and traversed the obstacles that inevitably come with parish building projects. We had a great youth ministry, music teams, welcomers. It was reported that we were the fastest growing Anglican church in the country. When people asked me about what worked and why we grew numerically, I would say, we believed the Bible. Our foundation was the Word of God. We taught it, prayed it, believed it. We didn't compromise the Word, even when some in the church and the culture which surrounded us referred to us as not mainstream. The Bible was who we were. We taught the Bible not only from the pulpit, but in our small groups. 80% of our congregation attended a small group associated with the church. Our foundation was Christ. <coughs> and his word. My brothers and sisters, have confidence in the word of God. Amen. Anglicanism from the 16th century Reformation has gifted us a reliable method to take us deep into the Bible. For daily offices in the Book of Common Prayer, they are a treasure for modern Anglicans too. If you follow the lectionary for morning and evening prayer, in the Book of Common Prayer 1662, in one year, you will read almost the entire Old Testament once, almost the New Testament three times, and you will read the entire Book of Psalms 12 times. The more time you spend in God's Word, the more you will draw its nectar, and the more you will grow to love and trust Jesus. A member of the diocese wrote to me recently and said, and I quote, I never forgot discovering the Book of Common Prayer after having grown up as a Baptist, where they strongly advocated for daily devotions and Bible reading. All the resources on offer to aid just fell thin. Once I realized what the Book of Common Prayer is and does, I realized it was the devotional resource I'd been longing for all my life. You see, we hold in our hands the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And we believe them to be the Word of God written and to contain all things necessary for salvation. We are without reservation confident of this truth, yes? You see, the Word of God 
the good news about Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior, was entrusted to the church by God himself. Being entrusted with something does not give us the liberty to change it, to alter it, or to amend it. When you are entrusted with something, you become a steward of that which you have been entrusted with. Therefore, no matter how much pressure comes from a culture, or a movement, or a government, or a group of bishops, it's not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. I've said on multiple occasions that the last 100 years has seen an extraordinary dismantling in the church of apostolic faith. For many, there is a, a crisis of confidence in the Bible. This present day crisis has gripped the Anglican church at its core. The Church of England and the Archbishop of Canterbury have been impacted. In February, a majority of the bishops of the Church of England voted to welcome proposals to support church blessings of same-sex marriage in prayers of love and faith. In many places, these new prayers ask our Lord to bless sin, something that God will never do. In supporting the use of these prayers, these bishops are cloaking, cloaking specific sexual activity which the Bible says will result in eternal separation from God and presenting this behavior to the church as holy, precious, and worthy of the name of Jesus. The actions of these bishops can never be justified. I believe that when bishops act in this way, they are shepherds of the worst kind. Described by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel as those who have disregarded the weak, the sick, and those who have strayed. Jesus spoke of such bishops as false prophets, dressed as sheep. He named them as ravenous wolves. Through their action, the majority of the bishops of the Church of England who voted to support the prayers of love and faith are misleading many in the church to walk apart from Christ. The Archbishop of Canterbury said, and I quote, What we have in this decision is at its heart the chance to publicly witness to Christ in the most difficult, distinctive, and radical way. Listen very carefully. What the Archbishop of Canterbury and his supporting bishops have done is to lead the Church of England into apostasy, which is surely the greatest betrayal of the sacred office and ministry to which they have been called, and even a greater betrayal of Christ and his word. The Reverend Dr. Lee Gatiss, director of the Church Society, friend of this diocese, and former plenary speaker at this synod said, there are two religions in the Church of England in global Anglicanism vying for supremacy. Two fundamentally opposed conceptions of God. One is the God of the Bible as traditionally understood by believers throughout the centuries and all over the world. The other is flexible, the flexible God who changes depending on the spirit of the age and whose character and demand on us alter to suit our preferences and desires. One made in his image, 
the other is made and constantly remade in ours. Speaking about these new prayers in the Church of England, Justin Welby said, each of us will answer to God at the judgment for our decisions on this matter. We are personally responsible, he said. I am supporting these resources, and I quote, not because I think I am controlled by culture, but because of the scriptures, because of tradition and reason, evidenced in the vast work done over the last six years so ably by so many. People of God, when reason and tradition, no matter how relevant and beautiful they may be, are placed on a level 14 with scripture, the church will always totter and demise is inevitable. According to one data analyst, if the current trends continue, the Church of England will cease to exist around 2060 as the last Anglicans die out. The Church of England's very own Richard Hooker wrote, and I quote, What scripture doth plainly deliver? To that, the first place both of credit and obedience is due. Amen. This is why what we believe across the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word is so important. We believe that the Bible is living. It's active. It's far from being a dead book or a dead letter upon a page. The words of God are living and full of vibrant, heart-piercing life. It has the hands to lay a hold of you. It has feet to run after you, power to subdue you. It's sharper than the sharpest of swords. It has power to search out deep thoughts within our minds. And the Holy Spirit is doing this right across our diocese. This is the testimony of Pete Austin from Church of the Resurrection in Half Moon, New York. Pete always believed in God but needed to return to faith in Christ. After watching an online video series about end times, the Reverend David Hay gave him a pocket testament and Pete read the Gospel of John, received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour and was the very first person to be baptised at Church of the Resurrection. David Haig and delegates from Church of the Resurrection, Pete's story makes everything you left behind worth the struggle. A minister in another congregation in our diocese has been having conversation dinner parties on midweek nights to talk about Jesus with people who have not yet named Christ as Lord and Saviour. And on Easter Sunday morning, a young woman who I recently met who had been discussing the Bible at one of these events for a year was baptised in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What a delight! She said, it came on like a light. Helen Cole from St. Andrew's Church in Endicott, New York, has also discovered a new consonant in the Bible. After pursuing hardline feminism and Buddhism in the Episcopal Church, Helen came to a saving faith in Jesus at age 79. <laughs> Helen wrote, and let me quote, this season has been one of new understanding and rebirth. Being a cradle Episcopalian, 
I would not naturally feel comfortable shouting hallelujah, I am born again. But I am, and I want to share it with the world. I walked into St. Andrews one Sunday after a very long absence. I heard Pastor Jerry Shriver's sermon, and it changed my life. The sermon opened up my understanding of Jesus and his word, and suddenly I could see myself, my experiences, and my attitudes being challenged by scripture. I just want to keep digging deeper. Isn't that so beautiful? Is Helen with us today? Helen, would you stand and can we honor you? <laughs> Helen Cole, aged 79, transformed by the Bible. That's amazing. Praise God for his work in Helen's life. Have confidence in this book. Go back to the Word of God. Each of those testimonies reveal what can happen when people read the Bible. Through it, the Holy Spirit will steady nerves and calm fears and fortify souls with the nourishments that come only from God's Word and watch as He builds His church. I'm almost done. (laughs) Because He's building His church elsewhere. He's building it at Holy Trinity in Hillsdale, Michigan which joined our diocese in 2015 with an average Sunday attendance of 46 people. They are about to break the 200 barrier in average Sunday attendance. God bless you. He's building it at Church of the Resurrection in Huntington, West Virginia, a congregation we received this morning. Huntington is a city where our nation's opioid crisis is devastating the community. One out of every four times a Huntington, West Virginia fire truck leaves the station, it is for an overdose case. And there in that city, city, shepherded by the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Wiley, the Word of God is being proclaimed at Church of the Resurrection, and the congregation is full of young people. I feel old when I worship there. (laughs) Confidence in the Scriptures undergirds our own Church of the Advent, the only congregation in the Anglican Church in North America in Moore County, North Carolina. Moore County is one of the fastest growing counties in that state, and the venerable Michael McKinnon, aka Energizer Bunny, (laughs) planted Church of the Advent in September 2022. Michael believes, and I quote, that the Anglican way is to share the unchanging truth of God's holy word in love and loving those with whom we share it. You see, believing the word of God is the foundation of our mission and ministry here in the United States at our mission congregation in Ashanti, Ghana, led by the Reverend Baba Jide, and in the 11 congregations we serve in Haiti, led by the Reverend Joseph Jocelyn who recently wrote to me, and excuse me French scholars, and said, la Bible est que nous crions. The Bible is what we believe. Amen. You see, these testimonies do not only exist in our own diocese, they exist in the diocese of the Southern Cross, sir. Because Christ is building his church there. They're repeated across the Anglican Church of North America, the Diocese of Fort Worth, we're so honored, Your Grace, to have you with us here today. Can we welcome Bishop Ryan Reed?
and they're express, expressed, of course, across Bible-believing Christianity all around the globe. Just weeks ago, seven representatives from this diocese joined Brenda and me in Kigali, Rwanda, for the fourth Global Anglican Future Conference, GAFCON. It was a watershed moment for many of us in the Anglican world. Gathered together with Christians from Africa and Asia, the Pacific and Europe, the Americas and beyond, provinces large and small, individuals and dioceses, some who stand alone, others who stand with the many, but stand they do and trust in Jesus Christ and confidence in the Bible. In attendance were 1,302 delegates from 52 countries representing an estimated 85% of the world's Anglicans. That's amazing. Global Christianity and global Anglican Christianity is in very good heart. Thanks be to God there is a bright light shining in the Anglican communion today. This light is not coming from Canterbury or York. It is blazing intensely from GAFCON, the global family of authentic Anglicans who are standing together to restore confidence in the Bible across the Anglican communion through courageous men and women and young people who are standing shoulder to shoulder with us in this diocese. We are not alone. Christians like us with an unshakable belief that when you believe and receive God's word written, it is well it is well with my soul. With my soul. Amen. Amen. There is always a risk, but I cannot close without this comment. There is always a risk at an event like this when one begins to name names that someone will be left out. <laughs> that is inevitable. <laughs> I could mention Bishop's Love, Herzog, Benner, faithful and loyal leaders who not only serve this diocese but continue to stand alongside me in prayer and faithful service. I thank God for these men, their wives, and the gift of their ministry to us. Would you please join me in thanking our assisting bishops and their wives for their ministry to this diocese. mention the outstanding priests and deacons of our congregations and missions who shed tears with those who weep, visit those who have made mistakes and are in prison, serve in hospice care, college and military chaplaincy, and week by week faithfully teach the scriptures and rightly administer the sacraments, while many of them work additional jobs to support their families and ministries. I am so truly humbled to serve as the diocesan bishop of these men and women who give so much and by the grace of God continue to give even more. Once again, please thank our clergy. What can I say? What can I say about my staff team, Mark and Calling Steele, Sherry Edmund, Philip Shade, selfless, individuals who are the engine room of this coalition of congregations and missions who are walking together with me and Christ. Would you join me in thanking our diocesan team?
There is one voice. that for almost 32 years has spurred me on when I have faltered, prayed for me in the quiet place, believed in me, called forth the best in me, forgiven me when I have fallen, been patient with me, corrected me, spoken truth to me, loved me, pointed me to Jesus, and always brought me back to him. This is the voice that so often goes unheard in our diocese. In fact, she would much rather it that way. But it is difficult for me to pay honor to whom honor is due. Without saying to my wife, Brenda, you are a precious treasure given to me by God. You show me that I am strong because I am imperfect that I am wise because I have doubt. God made me the bishop I am with you standing alongside me. I love you and cherish you and thank God for you. day, the activity, the active potency of the faith needs to be revealed once again. The church must be steadfast, not accommodating of the alluring voices of postmodernity, in order to demonstrate without any doubt that the Christian worldview reaches beyond and above everything linked with the secular materialistic ideologies. This is the faith we hold. It is the way of Christ. It is the way of the cross. And standing fast in this faith, we must always resist the pressure to conform. When under duress to capitulate, Martin Luther, the German reformer, said in what are now famous words, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Over these past 10 years, this diocese has stood firm. And by the grace of God, fast in the faith, we continue to stand. Yes? We can do no other. So help us, God. Amen. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Therefore, let us make it our chiefest joy to study him, meditate upon him, gaze on him, sit like Mary at his feet, lean like John on his breast, appeal like Peter to his love, count like Paul all else as done, ask of him for increase and progress in his grace, so that there may be more decision in our character, more vigor in our purpose, more elevation in our life and more further in our devotion and more constancy in our, deal, in our zeal.
as we have position in this world. May we be kept from him, by him, from making the world our position. May we never seek in the creature what can be found only in the creator. Let not our faith cease from seeking him until it vanishes into sight. So ride forth in us, O King of kings and Lord of lords, that we may live victoriously and in victory attain our end. May thy dear Son preserve us from this present evil world, so that its smiles may never allure, nor its frowns terrify us, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude us. May we always know that we are strangers and pilgrims on earth, declaring plainly and confidently that we seek another country. Our title to it becoming daily clearer, our meekness for it more perfect, and our foretaste of it more abundant. So bold in these thoughts, we defy the adversary. We tread down his temptations. We resist his scheming. We renounce the world and stand valiantly for truth. And so, dear Lord, deepen in us a sense of our holy relationship to thee, never dallying with the world and its allurements, but walking by thy side, listening to thy voice, clothed with thy graces, adorned with thy righteousness as image bearers of an all-sufficient Saviour. Brothers and sisters of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the way is good and walk in it and find rest for yourselves.